Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, identifying forage efficient cattle was the focus of a study conducted by Dr. Greg Penner at the University of Saskatchewan. The study focused its work on individual operations to compare cattle within a herd instead of across herds. It involves a comparison in their herds by weighing the cattle, assessing body condition, and recording the day of calving. Dr. Penner will share some of the things that he has learned through this process. CN Rail reported a continued slowdown in grain movement for the month of May as farmers were focused on seeding. David Shednovic, the Assistant Vice President of Grain for CN Rail, says it's not a surprise, adding that the majority of grain had already been moved through the system. He'll discuss grain movement, the impact of wildfires, and how changes to labor regulations will impact the company. When we come back, Greg Penner. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. With me is Dr. Greg Penner with the University of Saskatchewan's Department of Animal and Poultry Science. Uh, Greg, we're going to be talking about an interesting research project you've got going on about identifying the most forage-efficient cattle in a herd. So uh, tell us um, how this project got its start. So we wanted to take an approach that really does not or at least in our opinion, does not prioritize or de-emphasize individual breeds. So we selected criteria that we think are important for every breed of cattle. And so the approach we took was to use a long-term selection approach. So this was a two-year selection approach with collaboration from Dr. Bart Lardner at the Western Beef Development Centre at the time, now part of Livestock uh, Ford Centre of Excellence. And we characterize these cows based on their ability to maintain body condition or back fat during the winter grazing period while they're out on kind of extensive grazing systems. Their ability to calve early in the calving season and their ability to wean a heavy calf relative to the weight of the cow. Is this a visual process or is there some other sort of, um, I guess, manual measurement that you use? Yeah, we wanted everything to be quantitative rather than qualitative. So we have hard data for everything. So we monitor body condition using ultrasound back fat. So we're actually measuring the fat thickness as those cows are approaching calving. We also recorded the calving dates. So we know when they calved within the calving season. And we recorded both calf weight and cow weight throughout the study so that we could represent calf weight as a function of their cow's weight. Were you able to establish uh, some sort of uh, range uh, or markers uh, to determine uh, which herds were more efficient? Well, what we did really was rank them uh, relative to their peers. And I think this is one of the strengths of this system because it, it allows individual producers to compare cattle within their own herd rather than comparing across herds. And as soon as you get into cross-herd comparisons, that's when the breed characteristics would influence what those benchmark numbers would be. And so this is a way that we could identify cows that are adapted to the system that individual producers are utilizing and create a metric where producers can use data that many are already recording, but use it in a way that allows them to select animals that are more efficient. 
The other part of this project was really to understand why they're more efficient. So once we selected our efficient and inefficient cows, we selected the ones that had the highest score and the ones that had the lowest score, and we compared whether they could perform similarly on different diets, whether the efficiency ranking was related to how they consume feed or digest feed, so diet digestibility, or if there were some other factors that were involved. And this is where we found some really interesting results, and it supports what we saw in the field. So even when we brought those high and low efficient cows into a barn so that we could do more detailed measurements, those high efficient cows, again, gained more back fat. So it reinforced the field study that showed that they had a greater ability to maintain their body condition during winter. They also did not eat more when we measure it in kilos or pounds per day, but because they were lighter when we measure it as a percentage of body weight, they actually ate more feed as a percentage of body weight, and they were able to take advantage of the digestible material better by excreting less digestible components of the feed in their feces faster. So there were real digestive physiology differences that allowed these cows to thrive under all different qualities of diet. Greg, tell us how producers will be able to use uh, the study results on their own individual herds. It's a strong advancement to help create a tool so that if producers do want to use this approach, they can. There's, There's a few things producers need first. One is, obviously, they need a scale. And and I think many beef producers now are recording cow weights or recording calf weights. And this is a really important tool, not only for this feed efficiency ranking system, but just so you know sale weights and you can evaluate the weight of your herd so you can predict what the nutritional requirements are. So producers need a scale. They need to write down those measurements. They need to have some assessment of body condition score as those cows are calving. So we used ultrasound, but ultrasound is a quantitative alternative to um, a qualitative assessment of body condition score. So producers, if they're putting their hands on their cows and assessing their body condition score and documenting that, we believe that would be an easy replacement. And then producers also need to record the day of calving within their calving season. So if they have those three pieces of data, we have created an initial Excel macro that allows them to enter that data and calculate their feed efficiency. And we're exploring options to make that macro a little more user-friendly and allow for broader application. And did you have an opportunity through the study to do the number crunching to see uh, exactly how much of a savings there could be for the producer? Yeah, we've gone through uh, some of those values, but there's a number of ways that we need to think about this. First one is we often talk about feed efficiency as saving costs, and that's an important part. But sometimes we lose sight about what drives revenue of beef producers. And the first part that drives revenue is a cow that actually produces a calf. And after she has that calf, weans a calf with a sufficient body weight. 
And so that's why we were using that metric because it's an important component of the revenue uh, factors for beef operations. Having a calf earlier in the calving season also allows that calf more days to grow. So that calf is typically heavier at a constant uh, marketing date. And so we're really not looking at a reduction in cost, but we're looking at strategies that will actually help improve revenue. Anything else about the study that you uh, wanted to share with us? I think the other part is, you know, this is really a a grassroots-driven project that was initiated by producers, the Saskatchewan stock growers, proudly funded by Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association through their Industry Development Fund, and very generous support coming from the provincial government of Saskatchewan through the Agricultural Development Fund. We also had a very wide range of collaborators, so a fantastic student named Justin Delver uh, really led the initial work of this project. And we have an ongoing student uh, looking at the genetics behind this feed efficiency calculation. And Lane Radwell is the student working with Dr. Mika Sai-Cokewell. And some of that will also be shown at the upcoming uh, Livestock Forage Centre of Excellence Field Day. Greg Penner is with the University of Saskatchewan. After the break, David Shednovic with CN Rail will talk about the slowing of grain movement in the month of May and the opportunities in CN for more jobs after this. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarland. David Shevnovic is the Assistant Vice President of Grain for CN Rail. We're going to be talking about some job opportunities at CN Rail and also the slowdown in grain movement, which usually comes this time of year. So, uh, David, uh, first of all, let's talk about uh, the month of May and how grain has been moving. It's been pretty slow the past uh, couple of weeks, really through the month of May. Farmers trying to wrap up spring seeding. Uh, a lot of the grains already moved. A high percentage of it is, is already through the supply chain. So there's not a lot left to move. And we've also seen the impact of lower prices on the pace of farmers selling. And, you know, that's got implications for how much grain might be carried over into the next crop year. So it's not that there isn't grain to move. It's that either there's the, the pace of selling slowed down or there's just a lot less grain left to move relative to when we would have talked two weeks ago or a month ago, right? It's just every week that goes by, there's less and less available. Did you see any challenges at port? You know, port has been pretty smooth, I would say, for the most part here the past couple of weeks. The wildfires, of course, are front and center in everyone's minds and the impact that that, that, that is having not only on rail operations, but on the local communities. The last major disruption that CN had to its rail operations was in the period May 18 through 22nd on the Slave Lake subdivision up in northern Alberta. We've also been restricted to nighttime operations in some areas by provincial authorities as a consequence of the impact of the extreme fire risk. Now, we've seen some rains go through here, of course, over the the past couple of weeks or so, but that being said... We are very closely, actively monitoring the fire situation, working with local authorities. A lot of patrols out there. We've got our Poseidon water train out there to be deployed to impacted fire areas. You know, we've got a lot of actions that we've taken to mitigate the impact to rail operations, but it is a a factor that we continue to monitor here very closely. Now, we're going to see some changes in labor regulations coming up this fall. Um, Do you see any impact on the railways? 
you know, there's a couple of provisions around rail labor that are now coming to bear. About three years ago, the Minister of Transport at the time announced a review of workrest rules and other labor-related regulations affecting rail transportation. I think of it very similarly as to the impact of these these changes to the workrest rules, very much similar to changes in uh, rules around uh, rest periods around trucking. In addition to that, this came into effect December 22nd, and it started coming to bear early this year, is that now employees will have another 10 paid sick days in addition to the time uh, they have off presently. If you take a look at this and you model these things out, right now we would anticipate that to do the same amount of work to accommodate these work rest rules that CN will require hundreds more people to do the same amount of work as we would have had previously. So we've got a very tight job market. CN's been very actively hiring and recruiting in part to meet stronger demand, but also in anticipation of changes to these rules. But you know, the resources that we do have will be stretched that much more as a result of the changes in these rules. So you've got that in play. And then on top of that, of course, as we've talked about previously, you've got uh, extended interswitching provisions being contemplated. And those extended interswitching provisions are going to slow down the supply chain and stretch those resources even more. So we're going to use resources for very inefficient moves. They're going to slow things down and create more congestion. Those things combined... When you have a slower rail network, that means less grain moving at the peak, not more grain moving. So, you know, people need to consider the unanticipated consequences of some of these changes in regulations here, particularly on extended interswitching, and understand that they have real impacts. Any final comments you'd like to share, David? It's going to be quiet between now and the start of new crop. We are really hoping that everybody gets timely rains out there and that people right across the prairies have a good crop considering some of the drought areas of last year. And uh, we hope for a, for a good harvest. And, of course, there's a lot of runway between now and then. So just like everything, just like we're watching the skies for, for rain to knock down some of these wildfires and their impacts, we're, we're hoping for a good crop for everybody. David Shednovic is the Assistant Vice President of Grain for CN Rail. These are the top agriculture stories for the week of June 12, 2023. There is some concern in the grain sector with the merger of Bungie and Viterra. They're calling it a double-edged sword. Ian Boxall, president of the Agriculture Producers Association of Saskatchewan, said while there might be some benefits, it's also a loss of competition. He says it's happening in every sector in agriculture, whether it's auction houses, equipment dealers, or input suppliers. Bungie operates 300 facilities across 40 countries, while Viterra operates in 37 countries and owns and operates 59 grain elevators, eight special crop facilities, two oilseed processing plants, and six port terminals in Canada. The merger is expected to close in mid-2024, but will be subject to the customary regulatory approvals. Agriculture groups are calling on the Senate to get Bill C-234 passed before the summer break. In a joint statement, APAS, Keystone Ag Producers and Alberta Federation of Agriculture, said the bill will exempt farmers from the carbon tax on propane and natural gas used for drying grain and heating barns, a cost farm families say they should not have to absorb. Bill C-234 passed through the House of Commons on March 23rd. The Senate completed first reading on March 30th, but have been stuck on second reading ever since. The federal government has formally responded to the U.S. Food Safety and Inspection Services proposal to change its product of USA labeling requirements. 
The proposed rule changes stipulate an animal must be born, raised, and processed in the U.S. to carry the product of USA label. Though voluntary, there are concerns in Canada that the rule has the capacity to become the real mandatory and will be significantly disruptive to Canadian U.S. protein industries. Ryder Lee, general manager of Canadian Cattle Association, says cattle feeding, finishing and processing business between the two countries works well and cattle and feed move to where it makes the most sense economically. He added, this layer of administration and segregation of supply chains adds costs without any benefits. The rule is currently at the proposal phase, and that's what's prompted formal comments from the Canadian government. Prairie Diagnostic Services in Saskatchewan is getting a substantial funding boost for its work in disease diagnosis, surveillance, research, and supporting animal health and welfare. The $18 million comes from the provincial and federal governments. Sustainable Cap will provide $3.6 million per year over five years to the company, which is an increase of $400,000. The limited trial of African swine fever vaccine in the Dominican Republic is offering the potential to tap down the outbreak in that nation and reduce the risk of spread to the rest of the Caribbean or North America. Dr. Paul Sundberg with the Swine Health Information Centre said three companies in Vietnam are testing three vaccines and the results so far have been promising. Sundberg said while past performance doesn't guarantee future results, it could be a significant step in decreasing the risk of the virus moving on. And if you're wondering what forages would work best in your field or need to figure out forage seeding rates, there is a new online tool to help with that. Forage U-Pick can help farmers and ranchers across Canada choose forages that best suit their fields, calculate seeding rates, and manage forage weeds. Forage U-Pick has recently expanded to be Canada-wide and bilingual, and it builds upon the previous version launched in 2020 that was only applicable to Western Canadian producers. The updated tool is available at upick.beefresearch.ca. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, tell your friends, and make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarlane for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Pattison Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.